welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Reverend William R. Daly, a member of the Congregation of Holy Cross and the director of the Notre Dame Newman Center for Faith and Reason in Dublin, Ireland. We will discuss his career in the law and legal scholarship, as well as his path to the priesthood. And we will also discuss mixology, his uh, his other passions. So welcome to the show, Bill. I hope it's among my other passions, but uh, uh, thank you for <laughs> being here. Yeah, no, I'm really glad to have you on. Um, you know, we've been corresponding for a long time on Twitter, and I always enjoy what you have to say. And I'm really looking forward to hearing more about you. Um, so I wonder if you could just start by telling listeners a little bit about your own background, um, sort of your experience going to law school, clerking, and and teaching, and sort of the sort of your career in the law before the priesthood. Sure. Although my career in the law um, is after the priesthood, so. I was a, which I, I, I don't know if that's clear to you. I'm happy to talk about the law first, uh, but I was already a priest when I went to law school. Oh, well, why, why don't you start there then? That's even, I had no idea. So the Congregation of Holy Cross is a small religious community uh, founded in France in the early 19th century, uh, re- really around the time we founded the University of Notre Dame. So at the time of our founding, Blessed Basil Moreau, a French priest, post-revolution, trying to help rebuild the French church, wanted to sort of work in education. But uh, the church also had a strong missionary spirit in the 19th century, as you probably know. And so right from the start, we were in Bangladesh. I always say we must be the worst missionaries in the world because we've been in Bangladesh since we've been in Indiana. And Bangladesh, I believe, by percentage, is the most Muslim country in the world. So that's how effective the Congregation of Holy Cross has been. In, uh, in our missionary efforts since the early 19th century. But uh, we also went to what was then mission territory in the U.S., which was Indiana, and uh, founded a school, which was essentially a little, a small boys' school in uh, north central Indiana in South Bend and um, St. Joseph County. And then uh, thanks to football and various other things, it became a university of some renown, which is the university where I went to school. And so uh, I joined the religious order a couple, a year or so after graduating. And I did so knowing that it had a strong educational mission. We have the University of Notre Dame, the University of Portland in Oregon, which was actually the first place I worked as a priest. Um, we now have merged with other kind of administrative units, regions, as it were, of the congregation in the United States. So Stonehill College in Boston, you might be familiar with. That's a Holy Cross school. King's College in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania, that's a Holy Cross school. So there was a sort of range of institutions. If I did choose to work in higher education, I knew that would be a possibility. We also have parishes and foreign missions. We're still in Bangladesh, as I mentioned, and we're in Africa and Chile and, and other such places. So um, I had majored in philosophy as an undergraduate at Notre Dame. And being a good and dutiful philosophy major, I didn't know if I believed in God. Um, but to the extent I believed in God, I thought, well, I'll, I'll want to be all in. So I did consider joining the congregation. But uh, Notre Dame is a strange place in many ways. And one of its strange, delightful features is that most people who've been there grow to love it. And so I thought, I'm not sure I want to be a priest or I just don't want to leave Notre Dame. So I will leave Notre Dame and not talk to anyone here, not visit, not come back for a football game, go be a lobbyist in Washington, D.C. So in 1994, when I graduated from college, that's what I did. 
loved being a lobbyist for United Parcel Service. So we, we can talk about postal pricing later in the interview if you'd like. Um, and uh, at the end of that year, realized that I was really good at being a lobbyist and I really liked it. And therefore, I was free to go be a priest, which hadn't been my goal in discernment. But it's what I realized I needed was the ability to say, oh, I could do these other things in the world, but I'm ready to go back to Notre Dame and pursue the priesthood. So did that. That's a six-year process, or it was in those days. It's gotten a year longer now. Um, graduated from the seminary and was and professed my final or perpetual vows in religious life in the year 2000. And uh, was ordained a deacon. You spend basically an academic year as a deacon. So 2001, I was ordained a priest. And my first assignment, which was in 2000 as a deacon and then subsequently as a priest, was the University of Portland in Oregon, where I taught some philosophy. And uh, after three years, the community said, why don't you consider um, going and getting another degree so you can work uh, you know, in an advanced way in one of our other institutions? So I went off to Columbia Law School then in 2003. Um, while in law school, I did the usual kinds of things. So the first summer, um, I did a, an internship with the Southern district of New York in the criminal division. Um, there was a, a scholarship program there from, uh, a Lloyd McMahon fellow. There was some legendary district court judge for whom luminaries such as Rudy Giuliani once worked and clerked. And so, so they're very generous alumni. They paid people to work in what is otherwise a non-paying position. The, um, the SDNY, which was a great summer. The next summer, I worked at the Cravath Law Firm, um, which was a great deal of fun. And most people were going into popping into Cravath, didn't expect to see a priest. So it was fun the days that I went in there in the Roman collar. Um, but after I clerked on the Ninth Circuit for Judge Dermot O'Scanlan back in Portland, Oregon, wonderful city that it is, I then um, decided I didn't want to go to Cravath. It was a great firm, but really, a friend of mine called me from Washington and said, look, it's not that we don't work hard in Washington, but it ain't New York. And why would you go to Cravath except for the money? And you don't get to keep the money, which is true. Any income that I have goes to my religious community. So that seemed a good argument to look at DC law firms. Uh, I'll connect this all up and end in 30 seconds. I, um, When I was a lobbyist, before I was a priest, we worked with lots of law firms uh, uh, at UPS. We had one of the biggest lobbying outfits in the country, as I'm sure they still do. And one lawyer in particular, a fellow called Paul Smith, uh, I still remember Paul very well. We, we became good friends within that collegial relationship. And I remember asking him once, I said, Paul, we work with so many lawyers here. You're the only one who's always happy. And he said, well, I work at a firm called Wiley Ryan, and um, it was founded by a guy who really believes in family. And while we make plenty of money, we don't make the most money. And we do that consciously because we like to get home to be with our husbands and wives and our children. And uh, that's the ethos of the firm. And it does keep us happier. So I remembered that conversation when I was in the middle of my clerkship. I hadn't applied to them uh, previously in law school. But in those days, uh, may, they may they come back again soon for our students. In those days, you know, there, were plenty of, there was plenty of law hiring going on. So from a clerkship, you could just write to a law firm who had never heard of you and say, can I come out? They flew me out, joined the Wiley Ryan firm. Um, then I did one more year, two, two years there, one year back up at Columbia as a scholar in residence, where I wrote the only paper I have published. Um, and if, if you've read it, you're not wishing there had been more, but uh, that was in the separation of powers, basically, actually presidential power. So um, uh, wrote about the attorney general and his control, uh, the president's control of him, uh, and went back to Notre Dame, then taught for six years before coming here. 
Well, so I, I'm I'm intrigued by that decision to go to law school and sort of the path you had afterward. I mean, to what extent did you have an idea of what you would be you would be doing after law school when you started? And was this a conversation you had with other people in the church about what the goals of going to law school were, or was it just a decision you made on your own, sort of charting your own course? Um, as a decision, we're we're, we've given a lot of autonomy. I'd say the religious community's attitude is at times in the past, they've tried to steer people toward one thing or another. And when it comes especially to the modern academy and scholarship, um, you know, giving people freedom, you'd, you'd be a person, I'd say, who would agree with this. Giving people freedom to do what they want to do is the best uh, uh, formula for their success. And so we don't really have a heavy hand in saying, what can you go study? If you said you wanted to study something that was completely obscure and you couldn't possibly get a job at any of our schools, then we'd probably try to say, is there a version of that that you could teach with or something? But so it was pretty much up to me. But like anyone else, I I talked to friends. I'm an extrovert. So I would have consulted widely. But, you know, you kind of know who you are, or at least I've kind of known who I am since I was a kid. When I was in the second grade, I wanted to be a priest. Um, but all of my life, I've paid attention to law and politics. I watched the Bork hearings when I was probably in the eighth grade or something. I haven't done the math on that. So no fact check, please. But it was around then. And, um, you know, I watched the Bork hearings with my dad. I've watched more C-SPAN than Brian Lamb, I think. So, um, so when I was in high school and I wasn't really thinking about being a priest and when I was in college and I wasn't even sure I believed in God, being a lawyer was something I thought I would do. I had been in high school debate. I like arguments. I um, I have proven to be decent at them on occasion. And so, you know, as you try and figure out what is it the world might want from me uh, and what do I find interesting? I've, I've always thought the law was um, fascinating. And then there's, you know, there's the, everyone has a kind of crusader aspect. Many would note and have noted some with more or less glee. And I don't think it's anything we should be fearful of discussing, right? I'm a Catholic. You follow me on Twitter. I'm pro-life. Anyone growing up my age, so I grew, I was born the year before Roe versus Wade. When you think about the law as a serious Catholic, one of the things you think about is why is the law so divergent from what we think is a really important truth here, right? So I don't think it's accidental. And it's ju- it's not just functional that, say, presidents who purported to be pro-life put people like Scalia or uh, now, let's say, Alito, um, on the court, right? We've got all these Catholics suddenly on the court. Uh, there were at one time we had what five Catholics occupying the so-called Catholic chair that Brennan had. Um, and uh, why would that be? Well, Catholics who thought they were smart wanted to to go do something about that. And I'd say that was in the back of my head. I, I never have written about Roe, and I don't intend to. But being a part of a legal culture that I guess pushes back against certain approaches to the law would have been a part of why I went to law school. I'm not sure I'm still there in terms of my originalism and whatever, but uh, we we can talk about that. But I'd say that's in the background because the, the law is Catholics are engaged, at least the kind of Catholic community I grew up in. They were all Catholic Democrats, but they were very engaged with politics, very engaged with society. The union movement would have been very important in my family's history and in the way they looked at the world. So for me, religion and public life, uh, and for many Catholics, I'd say that's true, um, are just the ways you, you, you encounter the world. Um, you know, a lot of the Catholics run for office. 
Notre Dame history is kind of this way, right? Catholic immigrant community, the Catholic immigrant community that came to the United States, they first came and took any job they can get. And uh, over time, then they became policemen and firemen, and then they became uh, local officials. Then they became doctors and lawyers. So Catholics disproportionately have gone into the so-called learned professions up through the period of my youth. So it also would have just been kind of in the air that you graduate from Notre Dame, you go on and get something else. Maybe it's a law degree. So that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, so was part of the idea when you went to law school that you would be teaching the law in some capacity after yes. graduating? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And so when you were teaching, um, sort of what did your scholarly portfolio or what were your scholarly interests focused on? And sort of how did you make the transition to your current position? Sure. So I ended up, when I when I went for that year as a scholar in residence, um, I wanted to think about separation of powers. And there were lots of live issues at the time, people talking about the Justice Department needing to be independent. And uh, I, I, I'm not really, I'm wary of sort of saying something we haven't actually ever had is something we were supposed to have from the start. So I was skeptical of that view and I wanted to look at problems, but there were real problems, right? So part of my paper looks at the torture memos. You might remember the firing of the U.S. attorneys and so forth. So I wanted to look at what's the kind of history. And, and it's amazing how legal scholarship moves on. I'm sure you've seen this in doing these many podcasts where you get a sort of primer on all kinds of fields you haven't looked at probably personally. Uh, even since I wrote my paper, which I think was published in 2010 uh, or 11 in the Notre Dame Law Review, um, I, I saw someone discussing papers in that field that I knew I hadn't seen. And I was like, my God, how did I miss those? Well, they were written in 2016 and 2017. Like, oh, okay, the conversation continues. So um, so I wanted to write about some separation of powers problems. My my strongest mentor at, uh, the mentor with whom I had the strongest relationship, I should say, was, was Henry Paul Monaghan. And I had taken a separation of powers course with him and begun thinking about these problems. So he, he gave me a lot of help and encouragement along the way. Um, and, and I thought about that there. So I, what I didn't do, I'm a strange bird in the sense that I, I don't do obvious things sometimes. I don't know why, but it didn't occur to me to ask anyone, like, what should a law review article look, look like? I know I didn't like most of them, and so I don't write in that style. So, um, you know, I didn't do a lot of literature review, and I hate footnotes. And, and uh, I remember the, editor, the student editor came up to me once after the thing was published. We never met. And he said, oh, you know, I was the one who, who uh, edited your paper. And um, uh, yeah, you're, you're a beautiful writer, but you're really not strong on sourcing. <laughs> I'm like, well, look, that's the assessment I would make. So that's good. Um, so that, that's the paper that I tried to produce in my first year. And then when I went back to Notre Dame, I was in a, a kind of VAP situation. And I was working on a paper in legal ethics. And that's where I began to realize as Henry put it to me one day when he endorsed my decision not to pursue the tenure track, you don't like to be chained to your desk all day like I do, Father. You know, there's place for you in the legal academy, but, you know, Notre Dame should find that place and it shouldn't be you publishing a bunch of articles. So um, you might want to end the podcast there. I'm not a legal scholar, but uh, so I then worked with the dean on what would my contribution be. And I did like teaching legal ethics. I do like teaching legal ethics. I don't know that I have a lot original to say there. Um, Brad Wendell has has sort of captured 
my approach to legal ethics. I think he's writing at least very important stuff for our time. And so I, I sort of built classes of getting students to think about the problems he thinks about, or whether they choose to think about them in the way that he thinks about them, obviously, is not something we can control um, or should. But uh, so legal ethics and jurisprudence were, were part of it. And both of those, you would note, are more philosophical topics. Notre Dame is one of the few law schools that still requires jurisprudence. And all professors hate teaching it because you get the worst um, CIFs when you teach jurisprudence, even even wildly popular teachers turn out to be wildly unpopular uh, when they teach jurisprudence as a required course. So the dean said, great, nobody wants to teach ethics or jurisprudence, really. So we have space for that. And that's what I was doing for the last couple of years um, before coming here. And then the president of Notre Dame was invited by the Archbishop of Dublin to address the fact that this uh, St. John Henry Newman built this church here on St. Stephen's Green, where I'm sitting and talking to you from, and really important churchman of the 19th century, uh, continues to be a, a figure that's contended with inside and outside of the Catholic Church for his views on um, uh, the logic of the development of ideas uh, and his uh, entangling, or his, his dealing with modern modernity and modern liberalism. People have vast disagreement about what he means, his thoughts on conscience. So he's a well-known figure. And this church is one of the more beautiful and important churches in many ways in, in the city center of Dublin. But no one lives here, and it had kind of gone fallow. So uh, the Archbishop of Dublin said, maybe the University of Notre Dame, with its resources, could send a priest over here, but one with an academic orientation to sponsor conversations that would bring people to considering the faith who might not be, who had walked away from the church, as many, many in Ireland have. Uh, so that's the idea of a faith and reason here. We're, we're trying to build a place of conversations that present the faith as plausible to modern people. Um, and we're trying to do that in a way that recognizes that many people think it's implausible and, and are happy enough that they've walked away. So we don't want to be um, beating people about the head and neck or anything. We just want to sort of give a, an intelligent presentation and com a host of conversations, really, and hopefully increasingly over time debates. So that's what I was asked to come and do. And uh, I was delighted to to do so. Um, it's quite far afield. I haven't been doing much other than tweeting about the law and, you know, keeping up a bit with reading and so forth. I'd, I'd now like to write a book on faith and reason. So I'll be returning to Notre Dame, uh, hopefully in the next few weeks. I'm waiting to nail down the exact position, so I'm not allowed to state it. But in fact, I don't even, I can't tell you what building it's going to be in. But uh, I've put together a, a proposal of a role that I would have. So I would leave this directorship just for family reasons. I'd like to be closer to home, my mother's health being a question. Um, so uh, the next phase will be yet a new phase, hopefully writing a book on faith and reason. I don't know how much, if at all, it will touch on the law. And I'm open to doing some more teaching in the law school, but we have a new dean now and I haven't been there for four years. So, you know, the life of the academy. I've got to go back and reintroduce myself and um, see if they'll have me back. Mm -hmm. Well, so I, I also teach professional responsibility and I've been a fan of Brad Wendell's for a long time. In fact, I interviewed him on the podcast, uh, I think a couple hundred episodes ago. Um, you know, I, I find... <laughs> but I, you know, I find one of the things I really struggle with teaching professional responsibility is the idea of of legal ethics and how that 
can or should be brought into the teaching of professional responsibility. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that and your experiences kind of on a practical level on that front and whether your faith and, you know, your experiences as a priest uh, informed the way that you approached thinking about and teaching legal ethics. Well, I, I think they certainly did, and um, but not maybe in ways you might imagine. Would my course have looked that different than a course at a secular school? Not really. Um, certainly not the, the materials that we would read uh, wouldn't look all that different. But if you were to if you were to look at the casebook that John Noonan put together, and you knew John Noonan's commitments, you'd know that part of it was who John Noonan was, and part of for John Noonan, as for myself, there was a Catholic intellectual formation there. But the, the the bulk of the stuff doesn't, you know, require that. I did not like teaching the narrow code stuff. I covered it. I felt, you know, we had a certain duty to do that. But, you know, I don't know what your law school uh, presentation of ethics was like. Ours was a one-week mini course with the dean. Uh, we used an examples and explanations book as our textbook and did like three hours a day for a week. And then everyone went off and took the, the, whatever the ethics portion of the bar is called. I no longer remember. Um, and so um, the MPRE, I guess it was called. And uh, th that's just what we did. Right. So I thought, okay, this is a required three hour course at Notre Dame. If all that stuff can be covered so minimally responsibly, then uh, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on it. So I tried to get people to think more, broadly and to bring the Brad Wendell stuff in to say, okay, what, if we want lawyers behaving ethically, that requires, that makes some presumption about them as human beings, that they've thought about what it is to be an ethical human being. And I can't tell you that you should start with Thomas Aquinas, or you should start with Immanuel Kant, or you should start with Nietzsche. But if I want you to be ethical, I at least want you to graduate from Notre Dame, having some sense that you could articulate to another person about how am I an ethical human being, right? And being an ethical lawyer is in many ways going to be a subset of that. Obviously, there are the curly cues of, of particular obligations around you know, privilege and confidentiality and those, those, those kind of rule-based things, which won't always comport with one's own personal ethics. But the, the stuff that Brad Wendell gets at when he's worrying about loopholing and so forth, that, of course, isn't captured in the rules. To me, it's the more fundamentally interesting stuff for the legal profession to wrestle with. Um, why do so many lawyers think, uh, in the case of, of Enron, for instance, right? I, I like to think about the Enron Barge example. Did you ever teach that? Uh, no. Uh -uh. So um, I'd have to remember what banks it were. But one of the big banks, might have been Bank of America, um, bought a couple of barges from Enron, these Nigerian oil barges. To do so, they created a, a, a hitherto unknown oil barge owning section of Bank of America. The only business plan, so far as I could tell, that that little entity had was to buy these barges off of Enron and sell them back to Enron at a predetermined price six months later, which price observers would have noticed looked awfully like interest, except that it was a sale of barges. It wasn't a loan. And so some people sat around in a room saying, well, we need to, to look like we've got some cash on hand. Well, we could borrow cash. No, no, no. You can't borrow cash to look like you have cash on hand. Well, what if we were to sell the bank those barges? Ah, that's a good idea, they thought. Because then the money sits here and we've sold something. 
But that's a bunch of lawyers sitting around in a room trying to figure out how within the law to deceive people. That strikes me as to to say, we might say, as an initial matter, that seems problematic, right? So that's the stuff I wanted people to think about. And um, I don't think any of that's captured in the rules. That's captured in reading stuff like Wendell and thinking about what's the, what, what is our role here? Is it really just to be narrow technocratic problem solvers who can help people to navigate the securities laws, which are there to help the public know the financial state of corporations without letting the public know the financial state of corporations. And in my experience of doing CLEs, talking to alumni and even teaching students, half of people who are in the law or are going into the law think you are leaving money on the table for clients if you don't look as a technocrat about how to undermine the law. And all this is, of course, covered very well in Brad's book. Um, he gives he gives that example of um, the professor who brought in the federal judge and and distinguished federal judge whom the professor admires. And the professor said, I think the professor was Hodes, who was taught in Indiana somewhere. And, and he says, this is uh, Judge Fry. Judge Fry, you're so great. Tell the students whatever you want. And the judge says, the law um, draws lines. And your job as a lawyer is to find where that line is and keep your client well clear of it. And the judge sits down and, and Hode says, students, ignore what this man just said. Lines, but you've got to get your client right up to that line or why is he paying you? And, uh, you know, he's leaving money on the table. And so that's that. That's not the only uh, thread in a legal ethics class, but it gets a lot of work done about you know what's the character of the profession and of course of the professional. So I liked that stuff a lot, and I found that it also overlapped in many ways with jurisprudence. You know, if if we say that the law is a civilizing thing that helps people use reason to settle disputes, right? And what stops them from clubbing one another or burning down houses or trading children or marrying them off and doing all the things that, you know, some contemporary societies and certainly historical societies have done to settle disputes, then we want to be able to say that there's something objective to it and reasonable about it. And that strikes me as something that implicates both questions of how do we read a text in good faith and say that we're governed by it? as opposed to just a game of, look, pay me because I can read this text better than Brian to get you where you want to go. And that's all the text is there for, is as a challenge to whom you can find, or, you know, pay Brian more, but he's going to charge you a lot more and I can probably get you most of what you want and I'll do it for less, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it really sounds like you're bringing some meaningful content to the ethical side of flooring, which I think is very hard to do without a grounding in some sense of, you know, what values we're trying to promote or why we're engaging in this kind of representation relationship in the first place. Right. So, yeah. So we, you know, Notre Dame has a, uh, a phrase that we, we often make fun of on the faculty um, at times because one, because it's one of these phrases you hear all the time. But it's, we say educating a different kind of lawyer. Now, I don't know. It's a kind of arrogant phrase, I suppose. But we at least want to say that in requiring a full three-hour legal ethics course and a full jurisprudence course, that we're, we are consciously saying, which many law schools have abandoned the one or both of those, um, uh, certainly most have abandoned the jurisprudence course, that we want you to be able to have a rich engagement with the context, the intellectual, historical and human context in which the law exists 
so that that's something with which your practice of it will be in dialogue over time. And, you know, one of the joys was giving CLEs. Uh, once I started teaching this, um, I, I ended up doing some CLEs for Notre Dame alumni groups. And to realize that this conversation has gone on at that law school, which is the nation's oldest Catholic law school, um, for a long time. And I'm not saying graduates of, of, of Kentucky or of Ohio State or other places don't have a rich experience of the law. But I'm glad that we at least say, yeah, here's the reason we're requiring these two courses. And we want when you come back in 20 years to say that some of the stuff that you read, some of the questions that you asked, you did continue to reflect upon and contribute as a member of your local bar and and uh, uh, and so forth. And, you know, and no law school should claim that it's doing unique things when it's putting out people that it's proud to send into the world. But uh, we all have our slogans for how we approach that. And that's certainly a, um, a burden I happily took up in, in thinking of Notre Dame's mission of producing a so-called different kind of lawyer. Well, so, so Bill, I wanted to just change, uh, change direction for a moment because you're, you're also well-known in the mixology community as a cocktail aficionado and, um, you know, you've, been profiled on your sort of interest in cocktails and you know a lot of really prominent people like David Wandrich. Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about your your interest in in cocktails and sort of how you came to that and how you think that intersects with your mission as a priest. And I should note for listeners that I am currently drinking a martini mixed on your instructions. And I have to say it is, uh, it is quite lovely. <laughs> well, I'm delighted. I, I should have made myself a, uh, a Manhattan before we got started, but um, I was chomping um, cucumbers, uh, for salad instead. But, um, so, uh, it's a happy kind of coincidence that I, when I was practicing law at, uh, I was at the Wiley, now they, they just call themselves Wiley, but then it was the Wiley Rhine firm and, uh, at 18th and K. So, which is not far from what was then a venerable, wonderful, cozy, strange, architecturally delightfully strange collection of houses that was called the Tabard Inn which were sort of rambling townhouses kind of connected together as an inn. And it had a little bar and restaurant uh, of some renown. And on Tuesday and Wednesday nights, a bartender called Chantal Singh uh, was part of what uh, you, I, I can judge from, I know what you've put into your drink. So the fact that you have Noily Pratt means you're aware there has been this cocktail revival movement going on for some decades now, really. Uh, and a, a, a large part of it is getting back to, uh, at least the lore, right? There's always the received history. So I'm not going to claim to be a historian, but a part of the received history is in the 19th century in the United States and in the time period leading up to prohibition, bartenders were like chefs in the big cities. And so you'd go to this bar to have Brian Fry's Manhattan or his martini, and he would pr prepare it with care in beautiful glassware and so forth. And 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 after Prohibition and for a variety of reasons, that sort of tradition fell away. And then the 1970s, which ruined so many things like pants and ties and suits, also ruined drinking. And there was lots of gloppy stuff with bizarre names. So there was an idea in the 1980s led in London and New York to kind of get back to this gold, so-called golden era of cocktails. And Chantal was, was reviving drinks from books that she had bought, old books and books by folks like Dave Wonder, whom you mentioned, this cocktail historian, a uh, delightful fellow. 
um, whom I'm happy and, and lucky to call a friend. Um, the the uh, so she was producing this on Wednesday nights, and one of my law colleagues, Howard Anglin, who's now uh, working in government in Canada, Howard said, "You got to come and meet Chantal and have her drinks on Wednesday nights." So Tuesday or Wednesday, pretty much of every week, occasionally Tuesday and Wednesday over time, um, we would go and have cocktails from Chantal. Her then boyfriend uh, was a fellow called Derek Brown. Derek came up to me uh, one evening and said, Chantal says you're a priest, but that you're cool. And I was baptized Catholic, but my family left the church, but I want to finish my initiation. I was never, uh, I never uh, confessed and I never uh, received communion. I was never confirmed because his family had left the church, but he had decided to come back to it. So could I give him instruction? And and we it happens that he lived within the bounds of the parish where I lived, up near the National Zoo in Woodley Park. So he came to Sunday morning mass. We read some books together. And then often these conversations over brunch or over whatever I'd asked him to read would end with him saying, tonight I'm opening this secret speakeasy. Will you come by? I think my friend would like to meet you. And so you can help us open the place. And uh, we're going to host the first ever repeal of prohibition party. Uh, from the DC Craft Cocktail Bartenders Guild. Uh, would you be on the host committee? Maybe you can get people from other walks of life to join us. And uh, and then one day they called and he said, um, Adam Bernbach has uh, uh, nominated you to be the chaplain to the DC Craft Cocktail Bartender Guild. Do you accept? I said, well, I don't know. What would my duties be? And he said, oh, we hadn't thought about that. He said, as you know, Adam is Jewish. And so I don't think he had a real priestly role in mind. I guess you just keep coming to our bars and we charge you less. I said, I accept. So um, once he, once I was on that host committee, I, we, we had this party with a bunch of distinguished bartending world glitterati from around the world. And, and um, I helped to host some of them. And I gave a toast. We all tried to give these sort of elaborate toasts. And uh, there's a kind of whole world of conventions and talks. And, and now, of course, there's Twitter and Facebook. Um, so when I moved back to Notre Dame, uh, uh, away from DC and New York, um, my friends there said, well, look, we'd still like to see you. There's this annual convention in New Orleans called Tales of the Cocktail. We'd like you to join us there and give a talk. And then they subsequently asked me to join the staff of it to be a kind of human resource to put on a cocktail convention to serve thousands and thousands of well-prepared drinks uh, for um, they say 20,000 visitors over the course of five days takes a lot of work and very little sleep by a bunch of people who are more or less between the ages of 21 and let's say 35. I call them my tattooed pagan flock. Um, they come from all around the world. They've been from like 30 or 40 countries and, um, uh, they're called cocktail apprentices. So I fly down early. I give some talks on leadership, on staying healthy, and then I'm kind of there for people to bounce things off of. And some of them are really skeptical at the start, like, why is there a priest here? Uh, but when they realize that it's just that I'm a safe person over time who has um, who who loves their industry and the people in it and who has come to see that, um, you know, I always say, why does a person uh, come into a church they, if they've moved to a town for the first time? They're looking for community. They may come into a church because they've lost their job and they need help. They may come in because they've got a job and they want to celebrate and give thanks. They've just had a child. They want to be married. These liminal moments, we call them. And the same reasons take people into bars. Uh, they want community because they're off 
working in a town they don't know, or they've just moved there, or they've lost their job and they want to commiserate, or they've gotten a job, but they want to buy some other people a drink and celebrate with them. So there's a lot in common between what bartenders do and how they help people to feel at home in the world and what a priest is called to do, it seems to me, and to help people feel comfortable in their own skin. So um, that is my line and they let me say it often enough that they bring me back every year and i've made lots of friends and i I continue to give talks on occasion about why monks make spirits like green chartreuse i've given talks to the green chartreuse people um uh one of my favorite spirits and how did i do it well the happenstance that i've described to you and also you know one should never deny i like the drinks they're delicious and you know after a few of them you can be fun after a few too many you need to reconsider but <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I hope that uh Maybell and I can visit you in uh South Bend sometime and have a couple cocktails uh in person. You will be most welcome and uh it would be a delight if <laughs> if all of this ends soon enough that I can even get back. I have no idea. I'm supposed to go back in July, I think, but I have no idea whether Aer Lingus will be flying there in July and if so when and uh now I suppose if I land I'll have to quarantine. So there's all that fun stuff to work out at pool of vogue as the sun was setting or the bright Meadows of Shelmalier, a rebel hand set the heather blazing and brought the neighbors from far and near. Then Father Murphy from old Kilcormick spurred up the rocks with a warning cry. Arm, arm, he cried, for I've come to lead you for Ireland's freedom we fight or die. He led us on against the coming soldiers and the cowardly yeomen we put to flight. Was at the harrow the boys of Wexford showed Bookie's regiment how men could fight. Look out for hirelings, O King of England, search every kingdom where breathes a slave. For Father Murphy of County Wexford sweeps o'er the land like a mighty wave. We took Camolin and Enniscorthy and Wexford storming drove out our foes. Twas at sleep culture, our pikes were reeking with the crimson stream of the beaten yews. At Tubernearing and Ballyellis, full many a Hessian lay in his gore. Our father Murphy had aids come over. The green flag floated from shore to shore. At Vinegar Hill or the pleasant Slaney, our heroes vainly stood back to back. And the yo's at Tullow took Father Murphy 
and burned his body upon the rack. God grant you glory, great Father Murphy, and open heaven to all your men. The cause that called you may call tomorrow in another fight for the green again.